Hey there, I'm Andy Malinsky. Welcome to the Get Out of Your Comfort Zone podcast, where we engage thought leaders about the challenges they have had in stepping outside their comfort zones in their lives and their work, and also advice that they have for young people interested in developing their leadership potential. This podcast is sponsored by Brandeis University's International Business School and the Perlmutter Institute for Global Business Leadership. I'm here today with Ron Carucci, who is a seasoned consultant for more than 25 years. He's got experience working with CEOs, senior executives um, of organizations ranging from Fortune 50s to startups, all sorts of organizations. He's consulted to some of the world's most influential CEOs and executives on issues ranging from strategy to organization to leadership. He has very, very broad and deep experience in a variety of areas. He's also a former faculty faculty member at Fordham University's Graduate School in New York, where he was a associate professor of organizational behavior. He's a writer. He's many, many things. Uh, so I'm going to hand it over to you, Ron. Uh, thank you so much. And I would love to hear some stories or examples about when you have had to step outside your comfort zone, and then we can go from there. Sure. Andy, so great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Um, gosh, so two stories come to mind, uh, and, and they're intentionally uh, later in life stories, for the folks out there who think uh, you know your, your comfort zone lind- window is limited to be disrupted. Um, so about 12 years ago, I was leaving a major consulting firm to set out and start my own firm with some friends, the firm I am with now in Avalent. At the same time, I was on the board of a startup graduate school in Seattle. I lived in New York at the time. And uh, the board, I didn't at the time really fully appreciate how startup the graduate school was. I'm, my experience with academia was limited. It was, a, you know, I would, as an adjunct, go in, teach, and come out. I never had to deal with all of the very unique, no offense, but the very unique swim lanes and politics and <laughs> no offense aud- taken. <laughs> oddities of academia. <laughs> so anyway, uh, about two and a half years into my time on the board, the chairman said to me, look, we need someone to come and run the school. This thing is needs to grow up. It needs to mature. It needs a lot of different things. People, That's not what people here are, are meant to do. Will you consider stepping off the board? and coming and running the school. And I said, uh, no, thank you. Uh, thanks, very flattered, but that's not my thing. Appreciate you asking. They asked nine more times. <laughs> Persistent. <clears throat> um, to say the least. Yeah. And in a moment of, I don't know what, weakness, uh, I don't know what it was, but in a moment of, I asked, I talked to friends, I vented to my wife, I got lots of people to just sort of be on my side and, um, and, but the, but some of the signals said you should you should at least consider it. So I I put my I said to my chairman, okay, I'm reluctantly going to tell you I would at least get into the conversation, but only if the following things were true. And I put on what I thought was such an impossible list of conditions that it would force him to say, sorry, we can't do that, and then I'd be off the hook. But that's not how it worked out. Uh, and so uh, they're like, no problem. Anything else? So I, I said, you have to interview other candidates. I'm not qualified for this. Anyway, all so, that so, is, I, so let me interrupt. So it sounds like um, this, because I think this story is, you know, you could substitute the specifics of the story, but it's a very familiar story to a lot of us, right? We're asked to step into a position that, you know, when, whenever we grow or develop in our careers and our jobs, we're often asked or the next step would involve something that doesn't, where, where we don't actually don't have the skills, right? So what were your fears, you know, if you had to kind of dig in, what, what gosh, do you think your fears would have been? Well, first of all, it was... It was the first time in my life I was being asked to do something I didn't want to do. Right. I, you know, usually the career choices I've made were things I pursued. Even if I was recruited or pursued, I 
had desire for what was being offered. I did not want this role. Um, it, it, it was a school uh, of theology and psychology. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a clinician. I'm not an academician. I had no PhD. Um, and I was a New Yorker, and they're in Seattle. So every form of outsiderness you could have, I had. Um, I, I didn't appreciate uh, how unformed the organization was. So, you know, moving my family across the country, we had just built our home, we had just settled in a community, I had the great school, community, church, my firm. It was like the, we built this idyllic life and now three years or four years into it, we're going to blow it up and go to like another part of the world. Um, so all of that disruption you know, at a time in my life where I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to sort of like, you know, ride the wave here now, not like have a crest on me. So all oh, that ch- change at once for so many precedents. And sure enough, as I got into the, the role, started turning over rocks and rising, whoa, this thing is really not built. It, it wasn't poorly built. It just wasn't built. Um, so basic process. Do you feel you were deceived then or you just kind of didn't know what you're getting No, I think I was naive. Yeah, I naive, think I was, yeah. I think they just didn't know right. what they didn't know as a board. And I was on the board, and I was the one that started saying, hey, you know, basic or like I'm a site or site guy, right? So I'm like, well, let's start with strategy. Any systems model starts with direction. Um, what, do we have one? Do we want one? How's that? Where are we going? Crickets. <laughs> so then it was, well, so we don't have, we have an organization here. We have a bunch of people doing like everything. Um, we have students who are coming for degrees. Um, we have various levels of accreditation processes. We have we're in, a, we're in an office park for a campus that at least is going to run out on in two years. I have I, so I had people doing financial work who were really, were really accountants. I had people doing you know major administrative work who were barely secretaries. It you know was just a, a variety of a mess. So when you stepped in there, did you did you feel I mean overwhelmed, confused? Like how did you sort of make sense of it and 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 then move forward? What the what the how did I do get myself into question was pretty common. Well, the interesting thing, Andy, was of all the emotions I felt, mostly not positive ones. Interestingly enough, I had to make a choice that regret would not be one of them. Hmm. I really couldn't look back. It was too big a leap, too big a disruption for my family, my kids, my life to ever go. Maybe this wasn't for me. Because right. that can, that dark that's a dark path. There's a lot of dark paths, a lot of dark days of you know tearing my hair out. Um, I used to have a lot more of it. Uh, I hear. And, you. <laughs> uh, uh, but I could not let that one allure me because I knew I would I would die. I was also a professor of leadership, so I was also teaching and building the leadership curriculum. But all of the questions I bring to the table were questions that the academics are not used to asking. You know, yeah. basic questions of discipline and. You know, um, one of the degrees the school offers, as example, was an MDiv. And they were fighting to keep it. And there was this debate about ditch it, keep it. What's MDiv, a master's in divinity? Master's in divinity, okay, yeah. which is a terminal degree. It's like it's like the MBA of nonprofits. Right. Um, it's a big degree. It's an expensive degree. And many schools, especially seminaries, are getting out of it. Hmm. And so I'm naturally asking questions they don't think about. Like I'm asking, for example, why is everybody else getting out of this business? Why do we want to be in it? Other than our students want it. Well, can I pause for a second? Because this is really interesting. So you, you actually—it sounds here like you're like in the story you're telling right now 
that you you weren't overwhelmed. You were actually sort of in some ways embracing your outsider status and saying, wait a second, I've got a perspective here. I, Despite the fact that I'm not all these things, I might have something to add. Is that true? or That's, that's very true, Andy. But what I didn't do was to see if that was working for them. I see. Interesting. Right. Yeah. So I, I I have no choice but to use my I have to use what I can bring to the table. Right. Very limited though it is. Right. On running an academic organization of people who, by the way, didn't want to be led. They didn't want a new boss. They didn't right. want to be led. They were very comfortable in this chaotic, frenetic. You know, startup to grow up of any place is is hard. And they when you impose discipline and structures and trade offs and accountability into an environment that hasn't had it before, they're not they don't like it. Right. And they certainly don't like the person bringing it. And I was a New Yorker, so I didn't bring it in very kind, gentle, passive-aggressive ways <laughs> they were used to. So I'm asking questions as an outsider, to your point, that I think are reasonable to ask. And I'm getting all the passive-aggressive nodding. So I think they want to ask these questions. Like, for an example, why are 55% of the credits of a 90-credit degree devoted to 10% of a job they're going to do? That seems a little strange to me. You know, so what's well, the way it's always done? So anyway, it was just one of many disruptions I was having to bring. And every form of disruption, as a person who thinks about org change all the time, I would bring. I was forgetting I'm not a consultant here, right? I'm not. I'm. I, I'm. I'm one of them, and I'm. Yeah. I'm behaving. I'm. I'm taking on the otherness they're giving me, and I'm making them more isolated, more estranged from me. And so it just became this very tense sense mm. of. Doing everything I thought I knew to do about building commitment to change and bring people on board, but when you're when someone's looking at you and thinks you are their boss with all the authority they have, I, I know this. I tell my clients this, but not myself. You can't treat them like they're clients. You have to treat them like they're people you are leading. Right. That's interesting. Who, 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 yeah. And I wasn't as missing all those tea leaves. So let me so let me pause here because I know you have another story and I want to hear about it. It's a really good – your second story is equally as interesting, different. But let me just pause and just ask if you sort of reflect back on the situation you just described. Like what did you – what what did you learn? What, what would you say are some some takeaways out of the experience of having to act outside your comfort zone in this situation? What it was like, what you learned, you know, some takeaways. Yeah. You know, Andy, so there's a lot of tapes in your head that play in those moments, right? Tapes of contempt, tapes of second guessing, tapes of frustration, tapes of being judged, so judging back, um, and getting all that underbrush. Gosh, in hindsight, if I could have been much more aware that that was happening, much more aware of how I was responding to my own self-imposed fears mm. and stepping and, and sort of isolating myself and, yeah. you know, embracing all of their resistance and being paralyzed by it. You know what it reminds so, me of? It's funny. When you're talking, sorry to interrupt, I guess I'm a New Yorker too. <laughs> actually from Boston. <laughs> Similar. You know what it reminds me of? Actually, it reminds me of, um, and I don't know, it's probably on my mind because I'm a huge sports fan and it's, it's uh, the NFL playoff season. And I, it reminds me of sort of like a novice, you know, quarterback going into a huge playoff game and just everything is moving fast and way too fast. But if you're a real, real seasoned player like Tom Brady, yeah. my favorite, they always describe it as that, that everything slows down. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it sounds like just that was just going through my head as you were talking that that things weren't slowing down for you in the sense that you no. couldn't reflect, you couldn't, you know, you sort of were firefighting. Is that kind of to, the way to? Well, not great. It's a great metaphor. Uh, and being in Seattle, go Hawks today against Atlanta, right? <laughs> right. Uh, I, so 
But I think the reason those seasoned quarterbacks think that, and so do seasoned leaders, is because they take control and make it slow down and control the pace. I got swept up into the freneticism of the organization yeah. and how they use that freneticism to dodge the imposition of maturity. It's interesting, yeah. And I, I didn't, I didn't reverse it. Interesting. All right. This, My own a- sense of inadequacy. I mean, huge imposter syndrome, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that they rub my face in all the time. Uh, I just took it and didn't say, wait a minute. Okay, so I am in charge here. I am the president. I'm, it's my deal. I'm going to be that. You don't have to, you know, and just sort of took control, control the velocity, control the pace, f- made the choices and, and not worried about the consequences of that and just, you know, push the change that was needed instead of, you know, getting in my head. It's also yeah. it's like a clinical school. So you have a bunch of clinical students who are all into how everybody's feeling and making sure everybody's okay and yeah. all that. And so I just got swept up into the culture and ethos that was there. And, and and probably went native too quickly rather than bringing the change I could have brought. So I, I got a lot done in five yeah. years. You know, by a lot of standards, it was fine. But boy, was it a rough five years. So um, let me, I, it's a very interesting story. And I just want to make one last comment and then let's transition. And the yeah. comment is just when you said imposter syndrome, I think a lot of us experience that stepping That's into true. a new situation. We feel we're a wannabe, a poser. I've written a lot about it in my new book, Reach. I talk a lot about it. But what I find actually interesting in your case, which I think is true of the imposter syndrome as well, that there is sort of a hidden upside to being a novice, which is that you can be, you can bring an outsider's perspective, a fresh perspective. And in this case, it sounds like they could have used a fresh perspective. So as much as you might feel like you're inadequate and that you're ill-equipped for the role, you also might have some assets like a new experience to bring to that role that you can't underappreciate in some ways. You know what I mean? It's a two-edged sword, Andy. You know, it's great to be the outsider who can be the fresh eyes and ask the dumb questions and be dumb about that. But if you haven't earned the trust or right. built a relationship to let them be recipients of those questions, yeah. which which can feel to them like indictments, yeah, it's like harsh judgments, yeah. like critique, yeah. um, then your outsider questions aren't very useful if nobody wants to find answers to them. Right. right. Very interesting. All right. Let's or transition. The, I, don't, I don't want to lose your second story here, but that's really, okay. yeah, no, that sounds like an amazing experience. I mean, a painful, but really a, a great life. You experience. know, in hindsight, I'm, I'm, I'm not sorry. I did it. I, yeah. I learned a ton. I stretched and grew in ways. Uh, I would have never, ever that's discovered awesome. of myself in, uh, you know, having stayed in New York and on the path I was on. So, you know, while it, there's scar tissue in places that, you know, there you knew, didn't know could be scarred, um, I, the scars have borne great fruit in my life uh, in a lot of very surprising and good ways. So I, I, I'm gra- I, I, re- I, I choose gratitude for that, that season. Um, so let's hear about your second story. Fast uh, forward. Yeah. 12 years. 12 years. So, okay, yeah. Uh, but you actually been eleven years. So about um, fast forward seven years out of a school last year. Um, I saw I'm the one of the ma- one of three managing partners at a firm called Navalent. We're a firm that does strategy, organization, and leadership work. Um, we're be- been very successful, have a great reputation, have lo- all passionate about our work. But you know, in, in a boutique firm, you have to be at least try and be selective about your clients. Um, that you choose ones you know you can help. Choose ones that aren't sociopaths. Uh, and choose ones that you, you know, when they, you see their name in the caller ID, you don't roll your eyes and get the Tums. Um, so, but I felt like at the point I was at in my career, that should have come easier, right? I should have been able to have clients finding me uh, that I would want to work with. And that wasn't happening to the degree I thought it should be. 
Um, and I was frustrated because I thought I was doing all of the things one would do to make that happen. I was writing and publishing. I was speaking. I had you know eight books. Some had been you know my last one had been a great bestseller. And I thought, well, gosh, isn't that what it takes? Now people will find me. That's not how it works. <laughs> it turns out that's never how it works. So I, in a moment of, of angst, in a moment of uh, I'm at a place in my life where I want this to be different, hired help. So it's always good for the coach to hire a coach, for the thought leader to hire a thought leader of thought leaders. Uh, and I found an extraordinary one, who the woman who introduced you and I, Dory Clark. Um, and you know, at first I started stalking her on LinkedIn, and then I had the courage to connect, and we had a Skype call, and I told her I have, a, I think I may have a referral client for you, uh, you know, and then acknowledged it was me. <laughs> I have a and, friend. <laughs> yeah. You, you might want to meet him. Uh, I think you could help him. And turns out I was right about that. So you know, if, uh, so we, be we began with a diagnostic effort, like all good clients, consultants go look under the hood. And it was interesting. I, the whole time I was processing the, wow, this is what I do. This is what it's like to be on the other side of me to take my own medicine. Uh, Dora and I just co-authored a piece on the, the, behind, the backstage messy making of a thought leader. And we mm -hmm. co-wrote the, the narrative of here's all the neuroticism that comes out of the person trying to become one and all the angst and work it is to change. Where and is here's this? The, I'd like to see it. Is it out yet? It's, it's not out yet. We just finished it, yeah, put the final out, we'll, and we'll okay. uh, publish it probably very soon. Good. All right. We'll look out for it. It was fun to co-create it from both sides of the, of the table, right? So from a, here's the, what the coach is saying and here's what the coachee is having to do. Yeah. So I – I honestly had no idea what I was getting myself into. I had no concept of what she was going to ask me to do. Her diagnosis was sharp, incisive, painful, and so true. Um, and I'm at that point, I'd only agreed to the data. So I, I said, oh, okay, well, do you do you think this is helpable? <laughs> she goes, yes. <laughs> so, so for example, one of her um, points of the diagnostic was, well, you're only, to, I'm, I, you know, I could not find you. If your goal was to be the best kept secret, you've done a great job. I could not get to you. It, um, why are you only talking to people who already know you? If you, need to, if you want to attract the kinds of clients you want, you have to go talk to them. I'm like, oh, okay, well, where are they? She said, well, why aren't you writing for a Harvard Business Review? Why aren't you writing for Forbes? Why aren't you writing for the periodicals? I said, well, that's an interesting idea. I'm fairly confident of it. I just call them up and say, hey, I want to write for you. They're not going to take my calls. She goes, oh, no, you're, they wouldn't at all. But if I introduce you to the editors, they will. And I'm like, oh, that's how this works? <laughs> oh! So she introduced me to the editors there, and I'm you know, anxious and nervous, like, how's this going to go? Pitched, and I started writing. You know, now, so in 12 months, I wrote 50, I've written 52 articles for that's, HBR and Forbes. That's great. So fast forward, she says, okay, now we need to sort of start building your peer set. I said, what does that mean? She goes, well, who are the thought leaders you really respect? Who are the people that have shaped your work, your life? You admire their thinking? I'm like, well, not, not many of them. A lot of, the, a lot of hacks out there. She goes, okay, but who? So I, I did some dig thinking. But I, so I came up with names like Daniel Kahneman, you know, Jonathan Haidt, people who's like, you know, are stratospherically brilliant and whatever. She goes, great, great. I want you to reach out to them and interview them for your Forbes column. Like, you want me to what? She goes, yeah, reach out to them and interview them and write an article based on your interview. I'm like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> they're not going to take my call. She goes, just do it. I said, Dory, they're not, why would they talk to me? She goes, just do it. I'm like, I, no, I'm not going to embarrass myself in front of these people. She goes, go on their websites. And they were like, at that time, they were like, I picked six of them. 
reach out to them, tell them who you are, write for Forbes, and tell them you want to interview them. Just see what happens. She goes, just humor me. <laughs> so I did it, and dang if they all didn't say yes. Wow. That doesn't so surprise there, me, actually. There I am on the phone with Daniel Kahneman, you know, and barely keeping a lot you know, trying to ask <laughs> questions and fascinated. Right. Uh, you know, and now, fast forward, so I'm now on Jonathan Haidt's advisory board, and I work with him at NYU on ethics and stuff projects there. Uh, the man's a brilliant man, great guy. Um, I have written several articles on on the work of their ethical systems. Um, I, I've interviewed folks like Susan Cain and just published an interview today on with Roz Savage, the solo woman rower of the world. I got the most meet the most amazing people. And only one person's ever said no to an interview because they're kind of burned out on interviews. Everybody else has been gracious and kind and said yes. Um, and I'm like, wow. But honestly, Andy, if you had said to me a year ago at the time I was transitioning out of the diagnostic work with her, just okay, just so you know what's going to happen in the next 15 months of the following things, I would have said, you're, what, what, which brand of cocaine are you smoking? I, I, it would have never imagined. And at every step, it's been this sense of gulp, gulp. And, and now to go, whoa, it's no wonder everything I was doing wasn't working. I wasn't doing any of the things. Somebody who wants to use thought leadership to distinguish themselves and attract great clients does to do that. I, I don't know what I thought. I don't know where I got the notions from. They were diluted. But I was nowhere near the path. And I thought I was center on it, right? So to have to live in the gap between at this point in my career, how could I have been so off? That's one narrative. Another narrative of imposter syndrome of no one's going to – this is not me, but I want it to become me. It's a voice I want to learn to use. So you know, there's a point at which in your late 40s, early 50s, you don't go back to school and learn new things. Um, you refine the things you know. And so to have to break that paradigm and go, I am learning a whole new set of things that – then you have to always deal with the should have learned this 10 years ago, should have learned this 15 years ago, and put that aside to go, but you're in it now, so just get on with it. In one of our first strategy sessions, and she did it. She was, Dora was brilliant in how she sort of got this. She was very deceptive in how she got this stuff out of me. So we're sitting in the Harvard Club in New York City, and she's, um, we're talking. It's our first session of sort of setting strategy together. And she's saying, okay, so, and she's very incisive and bullish on the objectives, right? So you want to attract higher quality clients that you want to work with in the following criteria. Yep, got it. So tell me about two clients you've had in your life that you work with that you would love more of. What were the stories? What did you do for them? How did you advise them? How did you have impact? Why they like you? Blah, blah. And so I just start rambling stories. And she's typing feverishly. And I think she's like any good consultant, just taking notes. Finish this two, two stories of two clients I would love more of. She goes, great. Here's your next 15-week editorial calendar for Forbes. I'm like, what? And she starts reading off these titles. So I told one story of an executive who I'd followed from one company to another, CEO. And when he got to this new company, it was fish out of water because the executive team and he had very different values. And we, and that wasn't he, – he was surprised and shocked and off balance by that. You know, how a CEO leads a team with different values. So she was extracting these insights from things that I don't even give a thought to. From a story, she's saying, if you want to attract these kinds of leaders to work with you, you have to write about the things they find helpful. And the way you know about what they find helpful is to look at what has been helpful to them before and write about them. Now, at first, you kind of go, well, duh. I would have no more thought about that 
than the man in the moon. It would have never occurred to me. So for me, it's like a, the other comfort zone that was expanding was, wow, help is really good. Having another set of eyes on your life and your work as a Sherpa is a great thing because this is really uncomfortable for me. But if I had to do it and think about it or think to do it, that would have never happened. So, 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 so let's pause for a sec because this is this is a really interesting story where you've re- it sounds like you have really gone outside your comfort zone, but you've but you've had the the help of a guide and a mentor not only to show you the way, but was there? So it sounds like she is a good example of someone who's given you very tactical, incisive, and oh, yeah. surprising advice. Um, how about emotionally, I guess, like psychologically, like how else is it, whether it's, I mean, you know, how, how she, how she or the, you know, someone like her can help sort of bring you along outside your comfort zone. Can you say you know, a few so, words about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we've, we've had, in fact, the piece we co-wrote has a lot of that neuroticism in it. One of the things she did graciously was she just didn't tolerate it. Mm. Uh, so when I would say to her, when I, when I be in one of my, I'm just so late to the party here, she'd go, Ron, we're all late to the party. We all should have been on Twitter in 1990, you know, whatever. We all should have been on LinkedIn. We all we all should have been here much sooner. We weren't. Get over it. <laughs> you know, so, I, you know, she would be she, gracious. So she's the voice in your head that you wish you had in some ways. <laughs> and, you know what? She's like, now, one of the things I told her, she, you know, she has the most uncommon sense of agency I've ever seen in 40 years of work. Um, she just... It's not just self-confidence because she's incredibly generous and humble too, but her own sense of efficacy and agency is like in a galaxy category somewhere else. And so for people, I mean, you probably saw this when you interviewed her, for people to have a role model like that to of someone who believes, not just that, that she's arrogant and thinks she can do anything, but when she sets her mind to something because she wants to do it, like write Broadway musicals or go be a stand-up comic, I mean, she's done, her life is an amazing array of stuff. She just does it. So for you, see, so so having a role model. So if we go back yep. to comfort zones, having someone to sort of temporarily supply that confidence boost to kind of push you forward, right? To nudge you forward, but knowing that she's the safety net there. Like she said to you, go try it. Go go go. Yep. Email these people. See what they say. And the implication, by the way, I imagine, is that you know, and if they all reject you, I'll I'll be here and we can talk about it. You know what I mean? Like so there's like a safety what net. What she probably there. would have said was, okay, try six more. Right, exactly. Right. So, so, and she'd written written her books about this stuff. She and she, the other thing that was cre- credible to me was she practiced what she preached. These are all the things she had done to build her right. practice. Yeah. Right. So she wasn't making this stuff up. No. I um, but right. to have the the person to you know what when when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I have a client. I mean, just from a capacity point of view, I can't write three articles, write work on a, a publishing a, on promoting a book. I, I have my own firm has an own blog I have to write for, and I have all these clients I need to do work for, right? So when we came up, even the question of bandwidth, uh, she had ideas for, right? So you're stretching capacity, you're stretching capability, you're stretching reach, you're stretching a voice, um, and in all these directions, she had answers. Well, this is really and never good. and she ne- the thing I love about her, she never has the presumption that her answers are right to be adopted. She always gives you permission to not listen to her. You know, feel free to reject this advice. She's always incredibly gracious. And so for me, you know, she's te- she's a decade younger than me, right? So that that's awkward and generationally weird, right? But that, I, I'm fine with that. I've written about, about cross-generational relationships, and I think we have to have a mutual mentoring thing here. So I was okay with that. But to, for me to – for her to honor my expertise and go, you 
this may not work for you. And you know, there's been times I thought, okay, I, that's a great idea. I, that's not that is not for me. There's been times I had, I've had to sort of conclude that, and I feel guilty for it, or not feel bad about not doing what she said. But for every one of those, there's been ten places where I've blindly, well, not blindly, neurotically, reluctantly taken on what she said to do, and at every time I've done that. Every time I've done that, it has produced great things. So let me that, pause that here. This shocked is, me. This is so we have to wind down here, but I, I'm really, I'm really struck by your story, uh, and I guess in in part I'm struck by the, um, the emotion, the passion that you show in telling it. <laughs> it sounds like having. Having when we're talking about comfort zones, it is hard to take that leap. And in your first story, you took the leap, but you were taking the leap without that sort of guide, in a sense, that that that, that person to kind of sh- help shepherd you through. And I imagine the goal ultimately is teach someone to fish so that they can then fish on their own, so to speak. Yeah. You didn't have that, and it's very interesting when you retell this current story how the emotion in your voice the the passion in your voice i think is just really reflective of how meaningful that person has been for you if i'm well, it's, yeah. a, it's a great observation andy and, and it's a couple of reasons one it's still fresh i just re-upped for my second year with her so now i'm like okay where does this adventure go from here yeah right I, mean, I haven't plateaued anywhere and secondly it's um even at this point in my career where i have 30 years of experience where people are coming to me for patterns and answers, I'm still discovering new things, right? So the notion of I can still learn new things. I mean, I, I learned to ski at 42 years old when I moved to Seattle thinking, well, if I want to blend in here, they all ski, have to learn how to ski. And so that's not easy to do with no muscle memory at that age, right? But I forced myself and symbolically, it was this emotional victory of I can conquer Seattle. Um, I can come here. And so learning new things for me is a is an, is an important is a, it's sacred for me. So to be in a place where I'm learning things I actually chose to want to learn, as difficult as they sometimes are, and as all those narratives in your head try and um, uh, resist you, you have to push past them. And yes, absolutely to to, ha- to see fruit and to have help. I, I would tell anybody who's taking leaps of faith off of bridges or whatever they're, you know, stepping into outside whatever's comfortable or familiar to them, have help. There is no badge of honor in solo, you know, solo jumping. Yeah. (laughs) Well, this is really, this is great. Those are both excellent stories, very relevant to our series. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Uh, Good luck with the book. And uh, I hope a lot of comfort zones expand well because of your work. Thank you for listening to the Get Out of Your Comfort Zone podcast. If you're interested in learning more about comfort zones and the work I do, please visit andymolinsky.com. And you can also find all social media links there or by Googling my name, Andy Malinsky. Also, feel free to email me directly with ideas for future podcasts, questions, comments. My email is andy at andymolinsky.com. Thank you so much for listening.